Good morning. We're back in Galatians, and uh, I think this marks the 13th week, and we're going to finish it today. We're actually going to finish Galatians. We're to the, the finish line. This is the last one. We've been in this for a while, and we've been working our way through. You know, what we're going to see this morning, really, as we start to get to the end, we're going to look at verses 11 to 18. If you, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there with me, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, 11 to 18. And what we're really going to see here as we get to the end is, is Paul kind of summarizes a lot of what we've been talking about and he hits on it. And it's like one last time he hits on this end and he says, and here we are. And if there's in a lot of ways, what he's saying is if there's one thing you take away from this, this is it. This is the one thing I want to make sure you get. And he summarizes it one last time. And it's 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 a, uh, as if you're telling somebody just uh, if there's one thing you want to impart to your children or your friends or whatever. This is it, actually. This right here is the, the one thing that we want to get more than anything else. And that what, that's what Paul's driving at. So let's let's read those verses and then we'll talk about that, uh, what that is and what he says here. But let's look at verses 11 through 18 of chapter 6. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book. We thank you for inspiring Uh, your Holy Spirit coming and inspiring the writing of it, that it's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. I pray that we would take it to heart, that we would see clearly what you would have for us in it. pray that your spirit would come this morning and open our eyes and our ears to hear your word and to apply this truth to our hearts. We thank you for what you've done for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. I was thinking this morning, here we are. We we did Jude a little while back, and now Galatians. So we're, we're two, after today, we'll be two down and we've got 64 books to go. <laughs> and, and at this rate, I figured this morning, it's going to take about 20 years. But that's okay. We'll, we'll, we have time. We'll keep working through them, but it's going to take us a little while. But as we look at this this morning, the really, the, what is the one thing that Paul's hitting at, what he goes to? I'm going to tell you, we really just sang it. And we sang this song a lot. Somebody said to me, oh, we sing this almost every week. We have. We've sang it in Christ alone almost every week through this series of Galatians because in a lot of ways it is Galatians. It is the message of Galatians right to it. And what we sang this morning till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. And that's the one thing. That's the message that Paul's going to. That's the one thing. If you're going to take anything away from Galatians is that the work of what Jesus did on the cross and what that means for us. And uh, what we see here is Paul starts to write and he starts to go straight to that. 
that Jesus is, that we're saved by faith alone in what Jesus did for us. And he gets to the end of this letter. And if you look at verse 11 with me, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And most scholars and most commentators think that um, Paul would always use, not always, there's, there's a couple of uh, letters that he wrote with his own hand, he says at the end. But there's some, a lot of times he would have used a scribe, or basically a secretary that would write it down for him, and he would dictate. But you get to the end of Galatians, and what Paul says is, I'm taking the pen from them, and I'm writing this in part with my own hand. And I want you to see with what large letters. And we don't know exactly why he's writing with large letters. Some like to speculate it's because Paul maybe had a problem with his eyesight, so he had to write with what large letters. But it doesn't really matter the reason, because what he's doing is he's emphasizing here at the end. And he's saying it's almost like underlining. If you're going to get, please don't miss this. Hear this. And he gets to the end and he says, look at what I'm writing with such large letters. So just as we as we get to that today, I, I want to echo what Paul's saying. If you've been with us or maybe you've been here certain weeks or maybe you're visiting uh, as we've worked through Galatians. If you take anything out of Galatians, if you remember anything from this 13 weeks, let this be it. That it's in Christ alone that we're saved by faith alone, by what he did. And that's what Paul's going to get to. And you may say, well, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, that's the heart of the Christian gospel. That's the straightforward thing. Should, that should be easy to get. But the reality is a lot of times, and we've looked at this week after week, we move it to the side and we trust in ourselves and we do all these other things to move it. And today I want us just to spend this last time. Paul gives us some real succinct kind of warnings about how, uh, why we miss it. That's the first thing we're going to ask. Why do we miss it sometimes? And there's some things he speaks to that clearly help uh, illuminate our heart's problem and why we miss it sometimes. The, the simplicity of the gospel. Then we're going to ask, how do we combat that? How do we really get it? And then lastly, why is it so important? So those are the three questions we're going to work through this morning. So first, why do we miss it? If the gospel is pretty simple, it's straightforward, you're saved by grace alone, by faith alone and what Jesus has done for you, why do we miss that? Well, Paul gives us a few reasons here, and I want you to look with me. Uh, verses 12 and 13, we're going to start there. Look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And the first thing I want us to see, the first reason we miss the simplicity of the gospel is we make it about outward things. We make it about us and what we do and what we can bring to the table. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. There's these false teachers that have come into the church and they're saying it's faith plus some other things. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law. You've got to. And it's the same today. Whatever you want to add to it, faith plus these things. And then you're saved. That's what they were saying. And Paul says, no, it is faith alone in Christ. Then you are saved and then you'll have works because your heart has changed. And that is such a huge huge difference. And I've said that a bunch. This is kind of review. I've said that a bunch through this series, but it is so important that we get what Paul's saying. And I want you to contrast it with what he says, what the truth is versus what gets us off to the side. Look at verse 15 for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What Paul says is an inward thing. It's a heart thing. It's not outward what we add to it. 
And I want you to see that contrast there, that the outward means nothing. But the reason we slip into the outward and we want to make it about us, it's right there in verse 13 at the end. He says, they want you to be circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. They want to make it about you. That's what the false teachers were doing. And that's what we want to do. That appeals to us. What can I do? What can I add to what Christ has done? What, what are my works that I can bring to it? And we've talked a bunch about this. It's all throughout the book. And the reason we do that is because we're sinful, fallen people. And our sin nature is to be inwardly focused and all about me. So we want to make it about us. What can I add? What can I do? My works are pretty good. Maybe God will accept me because I'm a good person. And we try to make it all about us. And that's really the biggest reason, one of the, that's the foundational core reason, our heart issue, that keeps us from grasping the centrality, the, the very heart of the gospel. That it's what Jesus did for it because we want to make it about us. That's the problem. We want to make it about us. And then we're going to look at a couple other things he says here because there's other, the other ones build on that. That's the, the base, the foundation, but then he builds on it. Let's look at verse uh, 12, what he says in verse 12 there. It is those who want to make a good showing on the flesh who would force you to be circumcised in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, I want you to think about what he's saying there. And then I want you to go back to chapter five, verse 11, because these two come together. We did this a couple weeks ago, but if you'll just maybe turn back one page, it's on the same page for me. Verse 11 of chapter five, Paul says, but if I brothers still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I want you to understand what Paul's saying in these two verses. What he's saying is when we add things to our faith, we add some stuff to it, it takes away the offensiveness of the cross. The cross is offensive to us because we can't add anything to it. And that's what he's saying. He says it's very offensive he says that in verse 12, they want you to be circumcised so that they're not persecuted for the cross. Because if they come preaching, these false teachers, if they came preaching just Christ alone and what he's done, they'd be persecuted because it's offensive. It offends all of us. And I want you to think about why it's so offensive and why it offends all of us. It's offensive to us because it says you can't add anything. You don't bring anything to your salvation. It's Christ alone. He did all of it. That's offensive to everybody. And it doesn't matter where you are on the continuum. You can go all the way to one side if you're very, uh, what I call, hedonistic. Do what feels good. Very uh, loose morally. I can do whatever I want. And you say, I can, don't, don't anybody tell me there's a certain way to heaven or not. I don't want to hear that. I can do whatever I want and I make up my own mind. When you come and you tell that person about the cross of Christ and what it means to be saved by what Jesus done, that is radically offensive to them. And it's offensive because they look at it and they think that's exclusive and it's narrow and it's oppressive. And how dare you tell me I have to do this way? Which, by the way, the person that says that, that objection today, that objection that, oh, well, we can all do whatever we want and don't you dare tell me and I won't tell you, is, is itself an exclusive belief that's very exclusive. And they try to put it on other people, but then they get really mad if you say an exclusive belief. I just point that out because I want us to think about that. When you hear those sometimes, you go, oh, yeah, well, that kind of makes sense if everybody would just do. But we all have very exclusive beliefs that we hold to, whether we realize them or not. And that's a very exclusive belief. But you can see how that is very offensive to that person. Don't you dare tell me this is the only way. And that's offensive to them. But at the same time, 
everybody agrees, okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But at the same time, the very conservative, morally upright person that's always tried to live a good life. And I've been a good, good husband and a good father and I go to work and I do all the, whatever you think is good, you're good, moral, whatever. And you do those and then you hear the cross that you're saved by faith alone in Jesus and it's nothing you do. That's very offensive to that person as well. And it's offensive to them for different reasons, but it's offensive to them because of what we talked about last week. They're comparing themselves to other people. Well, I'm better than that guy, and I'm better than that person, and I'm doing pretty good, and I'm trying my best. And then you say, well, it doesn't matter. You're no better than the person who just says, I'll do whatever I want. That's very offensive. It's very offensive. And the reality is the cross offends all of us. Because it says it's not you. And that goes to our heart problem that I was just talking about. The foundational part. We want it to be at least partly about us. I want it to be about, come on, I want to add something to it. And that's because of our heart issue. That we want it to be, we want to be involved. I want to say, well, this, I did this part. And uh, it's offensive when you realize when that person, and that's really why we miss it a lot of times. Because people want to make it about themselves. I'm a pretty good person. And it's offensive to them because it says, no, it's not about you. And I, was, I heard a really good illustration the other day. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller was telling this. And I've heard this illustration many times, but he's the last person I heard tell it. So I'm going to give credit to him, even though it goes way, way beyond him, I think. But he was talking about, uh, talking about the folly of the cross to those who are self-righteous that think they have it together. And he said, it's like if your house catches on fire and you run outside and you get your family out and you're standing in the yard and your neighbor comes up to you and he says, oh, are you okay? You know, what happened? Well, the house, you know, obviously the house is burning down, and, but, but you're okay. Yes, we got everybody out. We're okay. It's just our stuff. And your neighbor says, well, I love you, man, and I want to show you how much I love you. And he goes running into the burning house and he dies. And you'd say, what an idiot. Why did he run into the burning house? And you would think that makes that's what the cross seems like to someone who doesn't understand their own sinfulness. When you tell them Jesus died for you and they say, so what? I don't need someone to die for me. That's the self-righteous person because that's the way they see it. And it's so offensive. The death of Christ is offensive to them because they go, oh, I didn't need your that's not a show of love. Just running in and dying for me. But the reality is when you get the cross, when you understand your sinfulness, the other side of that illustration is you're standing there and the neighbor runs up and he says, is everything okay? And you say, no, my child's trapped on the second floor. And he says, I love you so much. And he goes running in and he rescues your child and then he dies saving your child. Then you see the love. Then you see how Christ loved you. You see that. But when we don't have that reality of our sinfulness, that's why we miss it. When we think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. And we don't get it, then it's then we then we miss that. So I, I want us to um, there's there's actually a I don't usually point to them, but there's the reflections in our in our bulletin, and one of the uh, the uh, reflections this week is from John Stott from his commentary on Galatians, and he says this so well because he says before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. You see that. That until we realize our own sinfulness, the cross is radically, it's just folly. It's a joke. Nobody really cares. And it's, a, and it's offensive to a lot of people because they don't see their sinfulness. And that's the reality that we have to come to. The third part I want us to see, though, of why we miss it. And we'll get back to the, our own sinfulness in a minute. But I want us to think the next step of why we miss it. There's a third part of this. And it's really well illustrated in a song we sing often here if you've 
You know the song, The Wonderful Cross, at the end of The Wonderful Cross, it says, Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. The reality is, when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you understand the gospel, what it says is that you're saved completely by Jesus' doing for you, nothing on your own. And the next logical step, and I've seen people kind of go through this, where they understand it and they can say back to you the gospel and they're still rejecting it. And you can see the wheels turning. If I say that I'm saved by faith alone in Christ, then that means there's nothing Jesus can't ask of me. And they go, ooh, wait a second. And that's where we go. it, It brings us full circle back to what can I add? What can I do? Because if I'm adding something to it, if I'm saying I'm saved mostly by Jesus, which is what the false teachers were teaching in, in Galatia, I'm saved mostly by Jesus, but I add my little part over here, well, then you can rationalize in your mind, I can hold part of my life back. Because I did part two. I did my little part over here, I'm a good person, so I can hold back some to Jesus. If you're saved completely and totally by faith alone, there's nothing he can't ask of you. And that's radically threatening as well. And that's why we miss it a lot of times. And people won't just come out and say that, but that's the reality. And the sad reality of the way that plays out a lot of times, and you see it today in America and churches more than ever, what happens is because the cross is offensive and because it it cuts all of us deeply, you walk into a lot of churches today and there are no crosses. By design. They've literally taken, I mean, literally taken any imagery of a cross out of their sanctuary because it's offensive. And they say, oh, we better remove that. And what happens, not only do they remove them physically where you see them, they say, let's not ever mention it. We won't mention it. You know, one maybe later on as we get to know people, we might in conversation say that, but we'll never mention it in our service. And they, and they do that because they say it's offensive. And they know it's offensive, so we'll just take it out. The problem is when you do that, I was thinking about this this week, If you remove the cross from the church and then you come together, what's left? It's entertainment and it's Jesus becoming a self-help guru. That's what we make Jesus into when we remove the cross. It's just some good moral statements that he says and you try to live your life by him. And that radically, that guts the power of the gospel. And it's so sad, but it's happening all the time. And I was thinking about that when, when I've heard that kind of, uh, I've heard people explain that to me. We don't have a cross and here's why and here's our reasons. And, and in my mind echoes what we read this morning from 1 Corinthians. And I came to you, brothers, not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I don't see those adding up. So just as an aside, as we move to how do we keep it central, one way we keep it central is we're going to talk about it every week. (laughs) And we've got crosses all over the place, and not that the actual physical seeing them really, that's not the main thing, of course, but we are going to preach Christ crucified, and we're going to hang everything on the gospel and keep doing that. So just just, just so we're clear, the crosses aren't going anywhere. Um, So how do we get it? How do we keep the centrality of the cross. How do we make this one thing stand out? And I think the first thing you see is right there in verse 15. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We have to start and keep going back to that you're not saved by your works. 
This is not self-help. It's not just about religious language and making big things about pulling these things out. But it says, as Paul says here, but a new creation. It is a heart change of what Christ did for you. That's got to be the first part. To really get it, it has to be a new creation, a heart change by what Jesus did for you. The reality is if you come here and we turn it into, well, these are Jesus' sayings, now try to go live them. Jesus is a good moral teacher and we make it into that and we take the cross out. It's kind of like if you pull up in an old beater car that's falling apart and, and the engine's shot and you barely make it in here and you say, the engine's messed up and I need help and the transmission's ruined and I need all this stuff. And I say, great, well, we'll help you out. And we go out and we put a brand new paint job on your car. And we say, there you go. All right, have at it. And you get back in the car and you start it up. And it, it looks great, but you are still got the same problem. That's the same thing if we make Jesus' sayings and his teachings. That's it. Okay, now try to go live what Jesus said because we're not getting to the heart issue. We're just adding nice, shiny things on the outside that you go, oh, that makes my... You walk out and you see your car and it makes you feel better. Well, it sure looks better. But the reality is it didn't really change anything. And that's the truth when we, when we don't keep the heart issue at the forefront. When we push that off to the side, the gospel has to be the center, the very center of what we're doing. The same, I was thinking of a good example of our, if we fall into that, that trap, that... We're, uh, it's about works. Let's just add some nice sayings and here now go try and do this. Uh, let's, let's do a series on your finances and I'll just tell you some good things that will help you balance your finances and then we send you out. And you don't have a heart change. Nothing's changed that got you into the problems you're having with finances or whatever. None of that's addressed. But we just go to it. That's kind of like uh, I was... I was trying to think of a good example of our, our works before God, and it's, I came back to, well, the Bible probably has the best example, and it usually does, but in Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to old school, Old Testament prophet, there's a, there's a vision that Zechariah has in chapter 3, and it's of the high priest, and the high priest is standing before God. And what happens is Zechariah sees God's, what God, the high priest looks like to God. We get the curtain kind of pulled back and we see. And if you know anything about the high priest, the Old Testament sacrifices, if you don't, that's okay because I'm going to tell you anyway. What happened is they would wash and they would do all this ritual stuff and they'd wash and they'd put on new clothes and all these things before they could go in. And they scrubbed in all these steps. And in Zechariah 3, what you see is the high priest standing before God and you see what God sees. And what it tells us is that God sees the high priest standing there And it looks like he's covered in filth. To God, it looks like he's covered in excrement, in the nastiest of the nasty stuff. And what it tells us and what that illustrates to us is that when we try to make it about works and our doing and our stuff and we think I'm doing pretty good, the flip side is what it looks like to God. Because he requires perfection. And he's perfectly holy. And our good works are as the filthy rags that the high priest has on And that's the reality. And until we get that, until we get that it's not our works, which Paul is saying in verse 15, that our works are never enough, the cross gets pushed to the side. That's the first thing we have to hang on to to get this. So we have to realize that we can't help ourselves. And to add to that, the second part I want us to see is that that's never who Jesus was. When we take the cross out and we make Jesus into a nice teacher with some good sayings and we can follow his teachings and we try to do our best. 
we're denying what Jesus said he came to do and we're denying who he was and who he is. Because when we push that to the side, that's not what Jesus said. And that's not the way he talked. And I kept thinking of that this week about this, this idea of, of the Jesus as the self-help guy, the self-help guru versus what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, he's walking with the disciples and he asks them, he says, who do the people say that I am? And they go, oh, well, maybe Jeremiah and maybe Elijah, maybe you're a prophet. And he says, OK, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Peter rightly says, he says, you're God. And Jesus says, you're right. God revealed that to you. And then the very next thing he says, when they get, when Peter gets, he makes a confession that this is the Messiah. This is the one we're waiting on. The very next thing Jesus says is it says he started to teach and tell them about how he was coming to die. Right there. I'm coming to go to the cross to lay down my life. And if you know that story, he starts to tell them, and there, there's <clears throat> old Peter jumping up. Whoa, wait a second. And he says, may that never be, Lord. And I kept thinking about Peter's going, no, 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 we can't lose our teacher. We can't lose him here. He's teaching us and he's telling us that can't happen. And you know, Jesus' response to Peter is he turns to him and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are being a hindrance to me because you're setting your mind on things of men and not on God. And when we make Jesus into self-help, some stuff that we can follow, we're not setting our things on the mind of God, but on man. Just as Jesus says. So when we try, I, I just kept thinking this week that when we try to make Jesus into that, it was echoing in my mind, get behind me, Satan. That is not why I came. And that's what he told them, and that's what he says to them. That was not what this was about. Jesus knew it, and he was always walking straight towards the cross that he could lay his life down for the sacrifice, not just to give us some teachings to follow. He did give us some great teachings that we then follow once we put our faith in him, but that's not how we're saved. And he made that so abundantly clear over and over. And that takes us right to verse 14 with what Paul says in verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I want you just to think about that verse for a second and what it means to boast. What does it mean when we boast? And it's, what it is is it's kind of what we make much of. And I was reading, and I don't remember where, on one commentary this week about how <clears throat> that you can see what you boast in when you're attacked. If somebody makes fun of you or they kind of put you down and whatever you shoot back with, that that's kind of what you're boasting in. And we all do this at different things. It's just our defense mechanism. And whatever we go to is kind of what we're boasting in, what we're putting. And what it tells us, though, is what's at our core. What's our identity? How do we get our identity? Whatever we kind of boast in is how we see ourselves. And Paul says that when you realize the gospel, your identity becomes completely and totally in Jesus Christ and nothing else because you realize every single thing that you have comes from him and no, nothing else. And if you're boasting in anything else, you don't realize who you are in Jesus Christ. That he is the only way you can save and that you're, you, we're, we're the high priest standing before God in our messed up, sinful, disgusting garments. And the only way, and that's what happens in Zechariah 3, by the way, it says God took off the garments and put on new ones on Zechariah. That's the only way we're saved. And when we realize that, there's no way to boast in anything else. You're saved by what he's done. For, you don't have a part. Your part is just to say, I can't do this. 
And I need you to do it for me. And that's why Paul says here, he says, uh, but far be it from me to boast. And really what that, what that very literally means is may it never, ever, ever be that I make or boast about anything else. May it never be about my works. May it never be about circumcision. May it never be about my church attendance or that I lead a Bible study or anything else. But it only, only is about Jesus and what he's done for me. May I boast in nothing else. It's all him and it has to be. So why is that important? Obviously, the most important is there's only one way to be reconciled to God, and that's through Jesus. I mean, that's, that's the most important right there, is that there's no other way to come to a holy, perfect God than the way he's provided, and the only way he's provided is Jesus. So that's the most important. But Paul gives us some very experiential kind of sides of this, of why it's so important. And you look at verse 14 and 15, and 15 it says, Neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision but a new creation experientially when you put your faith in Christ you get the Holy Spirit and you are a new creation you're no longer the filth covered high priest standing before him he gives you Jesus' righteousness and you're perfect and it's not your works and it's nothing else And you can stand before him now in perfect love. And you are a new creation and you're dead to all that other stuff. And you can leave it behind. That's one of the great things that we, the experiential side of that, if we could just grasp what that means. You know, we beat ourselves up with past sins and things and whatever. And it says you're a new creation. All that's gone. And you can leave it. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, the experiential side of that, that we miss so often. And we're all guilty of it. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. We all do that. And that's the reality of it. But the, I want you to see a couple other things he says that are so wonderful. Look at verse 16. He says, and all those who walk by this rule, and this rule really in context there is the gospel. When you walk by what Christ has done for you on the cross, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I'm going to start with the Israel of God part because the reality of what Paul's saying here is when you put your faith in Christ, you become the true Israel of God. The church becomes the Israel of God. You are part of that. You are now part of his family and he's brought you in. We saw that in chapter 3 when he, when he traced his argument through Abraham and he says the promise was always about Jesus and it was always pointing to that and now you get Jesus and you get all the promises of Abraham. He says you're part of God's family now. The experiential side is you're, you're welcomed in and you're part of God's family. You're part of the true Israel of God. But then the last thing I want us to see, or there's two, two last things, but they, they go together. Verse 13, it says, or verse 14, I'm sorry. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has cru- been crucified to me and I to the world. When you get this, when you get the experiential side that you've, You've been welcomed and he loves you and you're a new creation and you're part of his family. Everything else is dead to you. And I mean that in a good way in that you're no longer the uh, you no longer get your identity from this worldly things. 
where you live or the car you drive or the job you have or any of those things that go away. You only boast in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And what that brings us to, and that's why I said these two are together, is in verse 15 and 16, peace and mercy be upon them. When you get that your identity is in Christ alone and nothing else, all the circumstances that swirl around in this world and the things that people try to impose on you and they try to make you less or better or whatever based on your outward stuff, it all goes away because you are at peace with the God of the universe. And it doesn't matter what people say or what they think of you or what they look at because you're at peace with God and you have, he's, he's given you mercy. And the experiential side of that is when you, when you realize what he's done for you, then you can turn and extend mercy to others. You can live out the grace that you've been given. You can extend the love that you've been given and all the other stuff that swirls around. It doesn't matter. Because he's not changing. And you have that experiential, that rock solid and what Christ has done for you and that can't be taken ever, ever. And it's such a wonderful thing when we grasp that because it radically changes the way we look at the world and the way we look at what people say and what they do and then then you can really, you're freed. Your freedom is to live for God and for what Christ has done for you and nothing else. You're freed from all the other stuff. Um, I pray that that's what we take more than anything from Galatians. The centrality of the cross and what that means for us. That we're saved by Him alone and it totally radically changes everything in our life. That that would always be where we are as a church, that the cross would always be central, that we would be such overwhelmingly gospel-centered people in all that we do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Galatians. We thank you for this wonderful book that uh, truly points us completely and totally to you and what you've done for us, that it makes it all about you. I pray that we would take that so seriously that that our lives would be completely and totally about boasting in what you have done and nothing else, that that would be our, our mission as a church, as, as people, as in our lives, with our relationships, that that's what we would always be about. We thank you, thank you for what you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.